All right, let's get started. If you don't have a, a little half sheet of paper that has something on it called, oh, I don't have the title of this on it, but it should say, From the, Tr the Psalter Hymnal, Sung to the Common Doxology. This is a, um, <clears throat> I tried to find this in our hymnal, but we don't have it. Um, one of the, the most, I think the most well-known parts of Philippians is what's called uh, the Carmen Christi, or the Hymn to Christ. And we'll look at it in a minute, but I was trying to find um, that, that hymn, or a paraphrase of that hymn. He who was in form uh, equal with God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should... It's like this. It's like a creed, you know? Um, and it's... It, you know, scholars say that it was a hymn, and that maybe Paul, they said, maybe Paul is quoting it. I think Paul wrote it, um, that it was a hymn that Paul wrote. Um, so I was trying to, f I thought, well, if we're going to study Paul, and we're going to study Philippians, and this is like the most, famous ver the most famous part of the epistle, we should sing it, shouldn't we? So I found this, uh, this version in something called the Psalter Hymnal. I don't know whose hymnal that is. It's probably a Presbyterian hymnal. They're the ones who are always about the Psalms, um, which I admire them for. Um, but I took the words out, and we're going to sing it. I thought, well, last week we did a brand new hymn, and it was hard, right? So this week we'll do something easy. So what's easier than the common doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow, okay? Um, but we're not going to sing those words. We're going to sing these words. So we're going to sing all four verses of this hymn to Christ, and you can take this home, you can put it in your Bible, um, and it's not an exact translation, but it's pretty darn close. Um, there might be some slight changes that I might suggest, but um, this is good, and so we're going to use it. All right, so we're going to sing this to the common doxology. Christ, who is in the form of God, did not retain his lofty place, but taking on a servant's role, became a member of our race. And being found in human form, Humbly he suffered further loss By willingly accepting death Yes, even death upon a cross Therefore has God exalted him and raised him to the highest place, and given him that matchless name, worthy of all names to be praised, that at the name of Jesus Christ, 
showed every creature bend the knee, and every tongue confess him Lord to God's own glory endlessly. Amen. <laughs> if you ever go to the uh, to a synod convention, or if you ever go to any gathering of Lutherans, uh, at some point someone will say, "Let's stand and sing the doxology," and then um, you know you have to have a few people in the crowd who can sing the parts. So we have work to do. Um, it's it's really nice when you can sing it in parts. But I love that. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and to be able to sing it, put it to music. Um, is really great. Um, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. This will give us just a little bit, we're not going to read verse by verse, but I'd like you to see the background for Philippians. Okay, And there's a couple of uh, well-known stories from Paul's time in the city of Philippi. I don't have a handout for you tonight. Um, I just didn't do it. Uh, but I wrote on the board here an outline or a, a possible outline of Philippians, um, but the background for Philippians is that this is back, this is actually a long time in the Pauline scheme of things. He planted the church a long time before he wrote the letter to it. So this is all the way back in Paul's second missionary journey. Um, this is probably about, I want to say maybe 10 years or so before he actually writes to the Philippians. But if you look in Acts 16, um, you can look there at verse, where to start? Look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Okay, so this is Paul's arrival in Philippi. And something kind of interesting there, who is with him? Did you notice the pronoun there in Acts 16? We. This is the first place that Acts says we were doing things. And who's the author of Acts? Luke. So who is included at this point? Luke, at least, right? I think he's got Timothy with him, and he probably has a few other helpers along the way. I think he's there with Silas at this point. Um, but it's just interesting to sort of theorize maybe Luke was, you know, maybe Paul picked up Luke right around Philippi. And maybe Luke had some kind of ongoing ministry um, to the Philippians. But in, in any case, that's where Philippi is. It's in Macedonia. Who's the most famous Macedonian? Alexander, well, his father, right? He was a Greek, or he wanted to be a Greek, but his father, Philip, was a, a Macedonian. Um, that, that was 300 years uh, before Christ. Um, but then if you just look at the headers, we won't read these stories, but the first person who is very influential in Philippi is Lydia. Had to mention Lydia, didn't I? Um, so Lydia is the first person, and um, kind of key to Lydia's story, look down at, the, uh, at verse 15, chapter 16 of Acts, verse 15, sorry. After she was baptized and her household as well, this is 
everybody's household gets baptized in Philippi. So this is good stuff for, you know, if you're looking for passages that talk about baptizing children or infants, you're not going to find, then they baptized a three-day-old baby. That doesn't, that kind of detail's not there. But the baptism of whole households would at least be an indication, well, who was in the household? How many people did they was it likely that there might have been some children in the household? In any case, um, after her household was baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So this invitation of Lydia to the apostle, this come and stay in my house, that means Lydia's house became um, St. Paul's, what do we, what's that called? Um, yeah, church. Um, his center of command, his, his operating base. He, that's, where he's, that, that's the main um, place in Philippi, is Lydia's house. Um, we also know Lydia was wealthy. How do we know? She sold purple clothes, and you make good money if you sell purple clothes, okay? Um, it'd be like, uh, what would be the equivalent today? I don't know, it'd be like if you were selling Ferraris, you know, you're probably doing pretty well. So she probably had a big house and, and they could set things up. But then the next story um, is, and this is going to come up again in Philippians, Paul and Silas go to jail. All right. And the reason they go to jail, if you look here, look what happens. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Imagine having somebody following you around. Okay. And she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Sounds like a good thing, right? But this is why they go to jail, because when her masters find out about this, what do they lose? They lost their source of income, and so they end up getting Paul and Silas thrown in jail uh, because, hey, they hurt our bottom line, you know? Um, why, do you think, why do you think it's weird, isn't it, that Paul kind of put up with it for a while? I'd get annoyed right away because I, I just get annoyed easier than the apostle, I guess. Um, but why, did, why do this? Isn't this a good thing if she's like broadcasting? These guys are telling you about the way of salvation. Wouldn't you want people to know that? What do you think, Jacob? Well, it's because they want to be... She's, she wouldn't... They'd be like, oh, yeah. They just would be listening to her, not... Okay, so maybe people would put their confidence in that woman... Yeah, I think that's part of it. What do you think, Ray? Well, some people probably thought she was kind of crazy. Like, we can listen to her. She yeah. Talk. Yeah. If, you, if we had a, some tarot card ladies sitting out on the front of, you know, on the corner of 21st in Kentucky telling everybody, come in to St. Paul. They can tell you about the future. Would they be wrong? No, they'd be right. But everyone who drove past would think, oh, St. Paul is in league with tarot card readers. No, thank you. Right? And so I think that's, that's 
um, both of what you're saying is kind of the same thing. Paul doesn't want the gospel to be associated with fortune-telling spirits, right? That is not what the church is. That's not what the gospel is all about, okay? Yes? Partly because maybe she's kind of making it seem like they're the glorious ones. They're the ones preaching about Jesus Christ. And maybe the demon's trying to get, like, the people to worship Paul. Maybe, but it says they're servants, I think what she's saying is good. It's just who's saying it. Who's saying something colors how people hear it. You know, if I came to ch- church on Sunday morning and I looked like this, I'm not wearing my collar tonight, right? My hair is all crazy. People might say, I don't know, this guy's kind of weird. You know, your appearance, it's not that appearances are. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, better to keep silent. Um, and let people think that you might be foolish, then open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? Um, is that an Abraham Lincolnism? It might be in the book of Proverbs. Um, it's either, either Lincoln said it or Solomon said it. Um, in any case, appearances do matter. Uh, they're not crucial. They're not like the utmost important, but they do matter. Um, but if you keep looking down um, in the story here, you look at the next little header, The Philippian jailer is converted. Remember this story? So they're in prison, and what happens? Earthquake. God sets them free. Well, yeah, they're singing. They're probably singing what what we just sang, the doxology. Um, And there's an earthquake. God sets them free. And the Philippian jailer comes in, and he's about to kill himself. Why? I'm responsible, prison break under my watch, that means my life, you know, I'm, they're going to kill me. And right as he's about to do it, fall on his sword, he hears a voice, it's Paul. Don't do it. We're all still here. Not just Paul and Silas, but he somehow convinced everybody, (laughs) just stay here, guys, just stay here, okay? And then that man is converted, and then if we go on to the end, this is going to be important for later. Look at verse 37. This is what happens the next day. Paul said to them, or I'm sorry, uh, not 37, 35. When it was daytime, the magistrates sent the police saying, okay, let those men go. They didn't do anything wrong. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, no way. They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now want to throw us out secretly? You think you can get away with that? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized. We're so sorry. Big miscommunication. And it's public, all right? Now, why does Paul go to the trouble here of making this public? These were his enemies. They threw him into prison. Why do this publicly? Okay, Paul was publicly humiliated, and he wants to be publicly, what's the opposite of humiliated? Vindicated, good word. I was going to say exonerated, but I like vindicated better. And it's not just, whenever we think of Paul, we can't just think, oh, he, his feelings got hurt. 
And so now he wants someone to apologize for hurting his feelings. Paul is always concerned, not about himself and his feelings, but about what? The church and the message, the gospel. So the gospel is humiliated, and now the gospel is vindicated. And that is, that's, uh, that's my setup here for you for Philippians. Okay, so turn to Philippians, and while you're turning there, Jacob has a question for us. Right, yeah. When, you're, um, when the public officials have to kind of bow down to Paul and say, hey, you were in the right, that's going to lend credence to the church's ongoing ministry there, right? Um, we actually want, we want that, right? We want the society around us to say they know what they're talking about. They're, we want people to see the life of the church and, of course, people are always going to scoff. There will always be scoffers and mockers. Um, but we actually do want to have a good reputation in the world. We want people to say, okay, St. Paul Lutheran Church, there's something going on there that's good. Um, we can't just go in and, and throw them in prison. Um, and we can't just mock them. And, and uh, you know, we, we want that because it lends credibility to what we say and what we do here. All right. Go, uh, go to Philippians. And I, I wrote on the board behind me, I'm like a bloodhound now with chiasms. I smell them everywhere. Um, if you weren't here on Sunday morning, uh, we talked about a chiasm. And if, uh, if you were here, what is a chiasm? It's kind of like a poem. It's a structure. Okay, It's a structure of... Um, Rhetoric, or it's a structure of writing. And uh, Sam, what does it come from? Chi. The Greek word. The Greek letter X. Okay, so picture in your mind an X. Okay, and the structure of a chiasm is the just half of the X. I guess you don't have to picture it. I'll draw it for you. It's like this. When I tell a story, I'm going to tell the story coming into a central point. And then I'm going to kind of tell, finish telling the story by retracing my steps. Instead of going in a big circle, you can tell a story in a big circle, or you can tell one going into the middle and coming back out. Okay, this is very common in the Bible. We looked at uh, Genesis 17 and uh, the covenant of circumcision as a chiasm. Um, but you can do this in a number of places. You can do it with little stories, and you can do it with big stories. So I was thinking about these things, and as I was reading Philippians, I thought, I think there's a chiasm in here, right? Because um, I'm like a bloodhound now for chiasms. And the reason I thought that, one of the ways that you know that you're on the trail of a chiasm is when you have two really similar kinds of stories that aren't just right side by side. So in Philippians, the two big parts of the epistle are all this hymn to Christ and then this whole story of Paul losing a bunch of stuff and regaining it. Both are stories of humiliation and vindication. So I'm reading it and I'm thinking, man, Jesus was humiliated and vindicated. 
And Paul, then Paul starts talking about being humiliated and vindicated. And there's something that comes in between. Maybe those are two parts of the chiasm. And so I started putting it together, and lo and behold, you can do it. Okay? I'm not saying that this is 100% slam dunk, this is exactly the case. But not only does it kind of work, uh, but it also, there's lots of correspondences, which made me think, well, maybe there's actually something there to it. Then I looked it up online, and sure enough, I'm not the first person to say this. And that made me feel good, because it's like, okay, I'm just, I'm just doing what other people do. All right. Um, so here's the, here's the story of Philippians. We're going to have a greeting, a thanksgiving. Paul's going to talk about being in prison, but somehow the gospel's still advancing. Then he's going to talk about living or dying. Should I live or should I die? I don't know. Both sound like pretty good options. Then he's going to tell them, you know, make your way of life worthy. Then comes the hymn of Christ. And then in the middle, see, this is what I would expect to be in the middle. Put Jesus in the middle, right? That's usually a good idea. Put Jesus in the middle. But strangely enough, okay, well, then I thought, well, if Jesus isn't in the middle, then Paul will be in the middle. Not Jesus, but the apostle. But it's these two guys, Timothy and Epaphroditus. They're at the middle of the chiasm. They're kind of the hinge to the story. So we want to make sure we spend some time on that. After Timothy and Epaphroditus, we get a story, or we get kind of a recap of Paul's life, and he's basically saying, my life is a copy of Christ's life. What happened with him happened with me. Be like me, because I'm like Christ. Um, then he says, I can do all things or I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me, which goes along with this whole thing about living or dying. He says, uh, now you shared in my troubles, so thank you for sharing in all my troubles. That corresponds to when I was in prison and suffering. And then it ends with some quick greetings. And Sam said, this one's not good because it doesn't end with a kiss. Uh, there's no kiss of peace. <laughs> In Philippians, there's just, we'll have to settle for grace. If you can't get a kiss, you can get the apostolic grace, okay? So that's our outline, all right? Um, but we're going to really focus on these three sections, because our time is, is a little bit short. But we're going to focus on those three sections. Um, I do want to start with you, though, in the Thanksgiving because usually the Thanksgiving, there's certain themes there that are going to come out later. So look in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Here's his, his prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. There's a lot of joy in Philippians. Um, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent 
and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, so when you hear that, what things jump out at you? Is there any, are there repetitions? Repetition is a good um, way to indicate, oh, that's important. Uh, is there repetition or is there certain phrases that seem potent uh, to you when you read that? Okay, we're working towards Jesus. Uh, and especially there's, a, there's something um, temporal connected with Jesus here, right? Do you see that? The day, he's got twice he mentions the day of Jesus Christ. That's in verse 6. And then if you look down again at verse 10, the day of Christ. The day of Jesus, the day of Christ. Usually when we have that phrase in the Old Testament, it would be the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And when we hear that, what do we think of? When will the day of the Lord come? The last day. Say it louder, Jacob. The day of doom. Which if, if, you're, uh, if you read your Norse myths, the day of doom is Ragnarok, when all the gods will die and everything will be consumed in fire. That's doom, right? Um, but we don't think that way. We think of the last day, certainly judgment day, the separation of the sheep and the goats, but we're looking forward to it, right? We don't want to avoid it. We want to get there. And there's certainly, I think Paul is pointing us ahead there. There is another sense of the day of the Lord. When else does the day of the Lord happen? You get it at the very end of time. What if I put it this way? When is the Lord's day? Sunday. Sunday. See how those are the same things, the day of the Lord and the Lord's day. Well, the, the Lord's day is this every week. It's kind of our weekly anticipation of the day of the Lord. Um, the other way that Paul and the, and the New Testament speak of the day as a decisive moment in history, that when the day of the Lord comes, he, um, he changes nations. He throws things into big upheaval. Um, and certainly as Paul is looking ahead now here, he's in prison in Rome, he can probably read the handwriting on the wall that there's going to be some pretty intense persecution coming. Um, he knows the persecution from the Judaizers and the resistance from the Jews. He's also experienced a little bit of the Gentile resistance, like he did in Philippi. They threw me in prison. Um, and he knows the teaching of Jesus, that there will come this time of persecution and suffering, um, which happened in the year 70. So all three of those things, the, the, um, the big upheaval at the end of the world, the weekly eruption of God coming to visit his people, the Lord's day, and also this day of the Lord, this decisive time when the temple's going to be destroyed, there's going to be this separation of the church uh, and the synagogue, and even the Roman world is going to be remade um, in that around that time of 70, all those things might be in mind. I think, he's, I think it's likely here he's looking to the final day, the last day. What else stands out in that language, though? There's a couple other things that um, jump out at me anyways. 
In verse 5, he talks about partnership, right? You hear that word in there? Partnership. Then in verse 7, he says, you were partakers with me. There's a little bit of repetition of this um, participation language. You were participants with me. And he says in verse 7, what did they participate in? What did they partake of with Paul? Grace and imprisonment, defense, and confirmation. So being in prison, Paul in prison, he's there, and somehow, some way, the Philippians are kind of there with him. We're all in it together is the idea here. Um, and they're with him in his imprisonment. They're going to be with him in his defense. And when he gets set free, which he seems to think he's going to get out of prison, um, they're going to share in that. What was the word you used before? Vindication. Everybody say vindication. It's, it's so good. It's so important. But it's something that we, um, that's underused, I think, by the church. We've kind of lost, you know, we know that we should suffer. Right? We're, okay, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a cross. Um, but we also should remind ourselves, sometimes we're going to win. <laughs> right? There is going to be a vindication. There is a resurrection. And of course, at the end, on the last day, that's the big vindication. But even along the way, God does vindicate his people. And those little vindications are important for the life of the church. Okay? Um, so then let's look a little bit more. Um, we're going to skip down to chapter 2. And we're going to talk about this um, humiliation and exaltation. Humility and um, glory. How else could we say that? Imprisonment and being set free. All of those are good ways uh, to talk about it. I think this is the theme of Philippians. If I had to say, um, what's Philippians all about? I would say it's all about humility and exaltation. Humility and exaltation. And here's why. Um, who would like to read for us? Read verses 1 through 5. Do we have any readers? Mike, would you read that for us? Chapter 2, 1 through 5. Okay, just pause right there. So he's, he's going to go on. That's good that uh, you made me interrupt you because that is a continuing sentence. Um, but you see this language of mindset, right? What is your mindset? And uh, he wants to say your mindset should be like the mind of Christ. He wants the Christians to have the mind of Christ. And uh, the word that he used back up in verse 3 is humility. So what does it mean to be humble? To have a humble mind. How would you explain that to someone? Do things, but not in a flashy way. Okay. Like right behind the scenes. Don't, don't be looking for credit. Okay, don't be looking for credit. 
Uh, it's interesting that you, you made the connection right away, Mike. I was hoping that nobody would do this, but you did it for us, of that there's action involved. Right? Oftentimes when we think about humility, it's like an attitude. It's like an internal, it's just something in my mind. I don't go looking for credit. I think little of myself. I don't think I'm anything wonderful. I don't think I'm anything great. Isn't that how we often think of humility? Um, but that kind of humility, if all you do all day is think, oh, I'm no good, I'm nothing special, I'm nobody, I'm nothing, I'm a worm and not a man, right? That's in the Bible. I'm, I'm nothing. You never actually do anything. <laughs> that kind of humility doesn't do anyone any good. And that is not the humility of Christ, right? Christ's humility is not just an attitude. It actually comes out. We, I think about this sometimes at um, Thanksgiving, right? Um, Thanksgiving is not something that I can, it's not an attitude, right? Gratitude is the attitude, right? But Thanksgiving has to come out. I have to actually talk to somebody. Um, I have to say, God, thank you for what you've given me. Now, it's good to have an attitude of gratitude, but do you see what I mean? That should come out in something that I say or something that I do. And humility is the same way. If I'm the most humble man who ever lived, like Moses, <laughs> who that's, he wrote that somehow, or it's in the part of the Bible that he wrote, that he's the most humble man who ever lived, that seems like an oxymoron. Well, you can't say that if, you're the most, if you are the most humble man who ever lived. You're not supposed to talk about it, right? Um, but I, I just want you to see the humility of the Christian. Yes, I think little of myself. I don't think what's in it for me. I think of others. But then there's the action that goes with it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then they, um, you know, when they would go out to people's homes, they would say, we just want to help you. Right. And you, you see how Paul puts it um, in verse three. He he defines what he means by humility in humility. Count others more significant than yourself. So you can have <laughs> this is facetious, but you'll get my point here. You can think highly of yourself. Right? You just have to think more highly of everybody else. <laughs> right? um, so if you think, man, I'm so good, I'm so smart, I'm so wonderful, well, that's fine as long as you think, but Kay is even better than me, and Bill is even better than me. You know? um, that's, the, that's the point. You consider others. It's not just what I think about myself. It's that I consider others um, more important than myself. And then he goes on in verse 4. Look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. And now he's going to say, here's how that played out in the life of Jesus. So read that for us, Mike. Uh, yeah, verse 6. Therefore, God 
Now, I don't know if you realize this. Some of you probably can smell it. That's a chiasm in there. There's a, you can break down verses 6 through 11. It's a, it's a beautiful chiasm. And right in the middle is the p- point of death, even death on the cross, which was the, the Romans had a saying that um, death on the cross was the maximum penalty. That was the ultimate penalty that anyone could pay. Um, this, yeah, yeah, this, that's what this is. This hymn is those verses. Yeah, crazy, I know. Um, so in, in any case, we're not, I'm not going to draw the chiasm for you, but um, look at where it starts. It starts with the Son of God, Jesus, equal to the Father, right? So if anyone could have ever thought highly of himself, I'm so much better than everyone else, that's God, right? He, that wouldn't be bragging if God felt that way. It would just be, I'm just being honest. It's like when I tell my kids, I'm the most handsome man who ever lived. It's just, I'm just being honest. And they say, that's right, Father. Um, and then Liz comes in the room. Shh, don't, don't say anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it says then, though he was in the form, though he was equal to God, though he was equal to the Father, he did not count that equality as a thing to be, this is a great word, grasped. Okay, so you get this picture of the sun grasping. And some of you might have little footnotes. We can get a little more of the feel of that word. Does anybody have an alternate translation there? It just says grasped. Grasped. Yeah, in my footnotes it says you could also translate it as a thing to be held on to for advantage. Something that he could hold on to. I am God, so you all owe me. A lot of the um, pagan religions, that's the, the reason that the gods create men is because they want someone to um, take care of them, right? Um, I think the, I can't remember if the Greeks were like this, um, but this is a common theme. Why did God create man? Well, to serve him, because he wanted someone to tell him how great he was. Uh, but in the Bible, God creates man not because he needs something. I need someone to praise me, to make me feel good about myself. Right? He makes them out of love. I think, yeah, the Vikings thought that, definitely. Okay, so you've got the son who could claim his authority, his power, his majesty, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? Verse 7, he empties himself. And look at the verbs. He empties himself. uh, Verse 8, he humbled himself, becomes obedient. These are all humiliation steps, right? They're kind of steps in humility. And the first step is... He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Okay, so was it, was it, is it humiliating for the Son of God to become a man? Why would, in what way would that be humiliating? Seems like a step down, right? Um, 
But then you remember, well, it does say in the Bible that man was in the image of God, that he was the likeness of God. So, my, and then we also remember when Jesus rose from the dead, did he, did he finally say, oh, good, I can get rid of this human body. I hate this thing. It's so humiliating. Let me get rid of it, and I can just go back to being pure spirit. Is that what happened in the resurrection? No. no. So it's not simply that becoming a man is humiliating. The humiliating thing is becoming a man with the effects of sin. So becoming corruptible or becoming mortal. Becoming, coming in the, that's what it means, in the likeness of man. Jesus wasn't, it's not just that he appeared to be man and it was all a trick, a ruse. Ha ha, tricked ya. Not really here, right? He's not a, he's not a Houdini. Um, but I just want to make that point that it's not humiliating for God to, be, to become a man. The humiliating thing is to share in the fallen man. And it, that gets pointed out here by, it says, he took the form of a servant. Think of the Christmas story. What's the shocker for the Magi? When they get to Jerusalem, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Well, why did they go to Jerusalem? Yeah, we, we don't know what you're talking about, right? Um, that he's born and there's no place for him. Uh, that is the, the humbling thing, okay? Uh, but then it goes even further. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even the maximum penalty, the worst kind of death, the kind of death that's reserved for the very worst criminals. Why is crucifixion the worst form of death? It's painful, right? It's, you're late and, and it's uh, public. It's a, a big part of it was not just that the Romans wanted to hurt you, but they wanted to hurt you publicly so that everybody who saw got the point, well, I don't want to be like that guy when I grow up. <laughs> um, that's why they also plastered over the top what the charge was. This is the king of the Jews. Ooh, I don't want to be the king of the Jews because <laughs> that's what happens to the king of the Jews. Yes? True. So um, then it goes on to say, after the death on the cross, uh, in verse 9, we get the flip. Okay, so imprisonment leads to, in, in the book of Acts, we saw Paul's imprisonment led to his exoneration or his vindication, right? Um, in the life of Christ, his crucifixion is followed by, for every step he goes down in humility, he goes up in glory, right? It's like, um, it's like the ultimate roller coaster ride, you know? Um, when we were kids, it was, we, everybody wanted to go to Cedar Point in Sandusky, Ohio. And the youth group, I think we did it once. I think I went and I probably threw up. It was, <laughs> I'm not made for amusement parks, but the, the steeper the drop, the more speed you get, the higher you can go back up, 
And that's, that's kind of the story here of the life of Jesus. He goes down, 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 and then he goes up, 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 up. And there's no end to how high he goes. So look at the steps it takes going up. And this is what I mean by the chiasm. These are just the flip side. This is the flip of the humility. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, I would think it would say, Jesus Christ, to his own glory. But here it is to the glory of the Father. And this is a great Trinitarian thing that the Son never says, look at me, I'm so wonderful. What is Jesus always saying? My Father. I'm just doing what my Father told me to do. I'm just doing what I saw him doing. I'm just doing, I'm just here, I'm just obeying orders. You know, it's him who you want to, and, and then after me, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And if you think I'm great, just wait till you get a hold of the Holy Spirit. He's even better. And then the Holy Spirit comes, and what's his whole mission in life? Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus is so great. You see how the Trinity works? It's never about me. It's always about, let me tell you about the others. And that becomes the pattern. You become like what you worship, you know? So if you worship that kind of a God, you're going to become like that. If you worship a God who's, pay attention to me, notice me, I'm so wonderful, serve me, you're going to become that kind of a person. Uh, but as it is, we have uh, the Trinity here. And that's what Paul goes on to say. Look at where this leads to, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Good luck! <laughs> but then he couples it with verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, for his good pleasure. So it's not just, okay, good luck, hope you can make it on your own. Um, you work, and the Spirit works in you, and you work with the Spirit, and you work with God. Um, that's why the Christian life is not, uh, it's not automatic, is it? Where God doesn't just set us like robots, um, and he also, it's not pure instinct. You don't become like a, you know, like a bloodhound who just is sniffing things out because that's, his, that's in his genes. It requires your will. It requires your mind. It requires you to um, think and to act and to plan and to do. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is all the while working those things in you. Okay? Questions or thoughts here? This is, that's really the, I think, the whole thing of, of Philippians. But the shocker is that that's not in the middle of the book. That Paul is not, he doesn't just stop there and say, okay, that's all I wanted to say to you. Just keep doing that. I feel like you could have, he could have ended there. That would have been enough, wouldn't it? That would be enough to have a great epistle. You could do a Bible study on that whole hymn of Christ. You could do, I don't know how many weeks, however many parts of the chiasm there are. Seven weeks. Okay? But then he goes on and he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so maybe we should end there. How much time do we have? 
Well, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll tell you this, and then we'll do Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look in chapter 3. Here's where Paul says, basically, all that stuff that I just said about Jesus, that happened in my life. And here's what it sounded like. Um, look in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the most Hebrew man who ever lived. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's like the equivalent of Jesus being equal to the Father. Paul is better than everybody else. But then he goes on to say, I got on the roller coaster and went down. <laughs> but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He didn't become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, but he, just like Jesus, lost it all. Paul loses it all. And he, he's not sad about it either, is he? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. And then that's the flip. From there, he's going to go about talking up and up and up. And if you skip down to verse, I think it goes on for quite a while. Look at verse 14. Here's the goal. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize of the upward call of God? Okay, everlasting life. What else might it be? Just think of that, of the language. When you hear that, the upward call, what do you think of? Put a, put a picture to it. Okay, maybe when I die and my soul goes to heaven, now we're thinking on the right track. But that's not quite the goal. Heaven is great, but it's not the end of the story. What's got to happen to that body of yours? It's kind of important, isn't it? The resurrection. The body has to rise, too. So the upward call of God is when he says, rise up, and our bodies come up glorified transfigured to be like Jesus. That's the, that's the final goal. Heaven is great. Um, all these things are great. Uh, but the final upward call, I want you to hear that as the resurrection. When we say the creed, we could say that at the end. I believe in the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and the life of the world to come. It's just an, uh, another way of talking about the resurrection. Okay, So Paul's life matches Jesus' life. But Paul doesn't put himself in the middle of the story. It's Timothy and Epaphroditus who are in the middle. 
So go back and look at them. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 24. Yeah, we read that when we were thinking about Paul's former life, being the Hebrew of Hebrews. Yeah. But look, at, look here at Timothy, and I want you to see, we're, I'm going to ask you to do this for me. See if you can trace out how Timothy displays this mind of Christ, this humility and exaltation. See if we can do it with Timothy, and then we'll try Epaphroditus too. Here's what it says about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. This is the kind of thing that usually he puts at the end of his epistles. But for some reason, he wants it right in the middle here. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father... He has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly, that shortly I myself will come also. Can you see how, can you put together here, how does Timothy's life show this, the mind of Christ? That humility. Yeah, yeah. Paul says, you know, he, he actually is looking out for the interest of others. He's got some other guys who are kind of self-seeking, <laughs> self-serving. Not every pastor is Timothy, right? <laughs> but he says here, Timothy's the best of them all. And he, so he has this mindset of looking out for the interests of others. And what el- how else is that displayed here with Timothy? It's a little bit, it's, this is kind of a hard one. It's not quite as obvious. He's willing to be sent, right? Before you can go, you have to be willing to be sent. And Timothy, um, I think in almost every one of the epistles, Paul's sending Timothy somewhere else. Could you imagine that? Right when you settle down in Paducah, Kentucky for a couple of years, Paul, your bishop, gets on the phone. I need you to go to Florida. And then when you're done with that, I need you out in California. And after three months there, I'm going to send you up to Michigan. And you can stay there for six months. And then I need you to go to Indiana. And after that, Maine. And Timothy is just like, yes, sir. Okay, where to next? You got it, boss. Whatever you want. Here I go. Right? He's never saying, no, no, no. I need to stay put. I got to raise my family. I got to take care of my kids. I got to make sure that they make it on the JV you know, baseball team. That, whenever my dad would come home and he, and he would say, uh, you know, we might be going to this other church, all the kids would immediately cry. Oh, we don't want to leave our friends. And when I got to high school, I, that's what I was just thinking about baseball. But dad, if we move, I'll have to play for a different baseball team and we're really good. So you can't go to a different, you can't, you got to tell God that now's not the right time. I've got to play baseball, you know. Um, Timothy, is he shows this mindset of the willingness to go, the genuine interest in, uh, in others, okay? What's that? He wasn't playing ball. Timothy? 
No, he was preaching the gospel. Um, the other thing there, just so you see this, he, look what Paul says. He's like a son to me. He served me like a son serves a father. Well, when we hear that, what do we think of right away? Jesus. The son and the father. And the son didn't count equality with the father, a thing to be used for himself. He emptied himself. And that's what Timothy does. Okay, let's see if we can do it with Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Can you, there's just little hints here. Can you figure out what happened with Epaphroditus? He was... Paul's servant, Paul's fellow worker, he was near to death, but it says he was your, look back at verse 25, he was your messenger and minister to me. So where did Epaphroditus start? In Philippi, right? They said, hey, we need you to take this to Paul. And Epaphroditus said, okay, yes, sir, you got it, here I go. And he went and he carried this to Rome, which they didn't have trains or planes or automobiles, right? So it was dangerous, and it almost cost him his life. But he was willing to carry this gift from Philippi to this apostle in prison in Rome. How does that display the mind of Christ? How does that show humility? What do you think, Jake? Even though I'm sick, I'm still going to go, and everybody's going to see me. My life is less important than this thing. The mission is more important than my own life. Did you have your hand up, Janet? Oh. Um, do you see how that goes? This willingness to suffer, this willingness to be in danger, this willingness to um, expose himself just for the opportunity to take care of Paul, to help Paul. Just think of that, right? Now, these guys, okay, you can say, well, okay, that's for pastors, right? That's for the professionals, right? That's for the, the weird Christians. But the rest of us, well, we don't do it because pastors do that. Do you think that's the message that Paul's trying to convey here? I, I don't think that his point is you all should be pastors, and if you're not being a pastor, then you're not really in the game. I think his point is, yeah, this, this mindset is common to every Christian. And it gets played out in different ways according to different vocations. So in the life of a pastor, it looks like this kind of thing. But in the life of a congregation member, it might be something as simple as, I look out for the interests of my friends. I look out for the interest of my family. A mother serves her children. A father serves his wife. 
Uh, all of this back and forth, this I take care of the other, the other, I count the other as more important than myself, that could play out in all kinds of different ways, right? And what, what's so great about Philippians is, think of the roller coaster again, the more that you go down, right, the more you go up. So nothing is ever really lost. That's always kind of the fear, isn't it? Well, if I take care of them, I can't take care of myself. Um, I don't know if you pay attention to these things, but this is a big thing now. You have to practice self-care. Have any of you been practicing your self-care? What, what is self-care? Jeff, you're smiling. You practice a lot of self-care, don't you? <laughs> Basically, it's just self so Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. That means I better really love myself. <laughs> and then maybe I'll get around to loving my neighbor. Um, so I've got to go on vacation. <laughs> it's going to happen. You don't have to, yeah, you don't have to worry. I don't think I'm taking good care of myself. Um, and that's, that's what Paul, the Christian life is always being, you're being driven outside of yourself. I'm being driven out of myself. So that instead of just thinking me, 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 I think you, you, y'all, right? That plural form is important there. Okay, um, that's where we'll end. Are there any questions on Philippians here? Yes, Mona and then Roxy. Oh. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the question is, is Paul putting in a little barb here, a little dig? You know, you, you guys made Epaphroditus almost die. I don't think so. Um, the reason I don't think so is because if you look, um, turn to chapter 4. He, he kind of returns to this, this whole thing with Epaphroditus. Look at chapter 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you, Philippians, to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. You guys were the best. That's what he's saying. Even in Thessalonica... You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So what he means by something was lacking in your gift doesn't mean you all were so bad. What was lacking was you put it together, but somebody had to bring it. And so Epaphroditus completes what they, um, what they put together. And that whole, I mean, that language is, I could, we could do a whole Bible class on they, sacrifice. They must that, have been really good if they were better than the Thessalonians. Yeah, they're even better than those Thessalonians. Yeah, the Philippians were awesome. That's why this, this epistle is called the epistle of joy. Um, the other reason, the other famous verse, I'll just say this and then we'll stop. Um, verse 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Do you know that song? How many of you know? Do you know? It's a kid's song. Repeat after me. Okay, we'll end with, with singing. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. All together. Rejoice, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. That was summer Greek class. That's how we started every class. But we, we sang it in Greek. And then we would launch into, um, okay, let's do the second declension. Everybody, to the board, get your work out. I love that class. But whenever you're feeling sad, you need to sing that. And remind yourself, okay, as bad as I have it, the Lord hasn't forgotten me. Rejoice in the Lord always. All right, let's pray, and then we'll head out. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you emptied yourself, that you became obedient to the point of death uh, for our sake and for our salvation. We pray that your mind would be in us, Lord Jesus, that we would consider others more important than ourselves, that we would live to serve those Uh, who you have placed all around us. And knowing that at the right time you will vindicate us, at the right time you will raise us up, and you will give us far more than we could ever ask or even imagine. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, Yes, next, next Wednesday we'll finish with Titus. Titus. Is that one short? It's even shorter than Philippians. Shorter than Philippians? It's not as short as Philemon.